Welcome to another episode. I'm really excited to share this one with you. Today, my good friend Renee Jeffis and I are having an intimate conversation about grief. Renee is a sacred grief guide and she is a transformational life coach, as well as a devoted mother who personally knows the excruciating pain and grief of losing a child. Three years ago, her beloved 18-year-old son, Bodhi, tragically died, and her life as she knew it shattered. Out of this profoundly painful yet transformative personal journey and rebirth, she has created an offering, an amazing offering, to help other moms that are navigating this challenging path of child loss. So without further ado, let's just jump into our conversation. Welcome to the business of inner peace. I'm your host, Erin Jean, and I'm so glad you're here. Let's pretend we're sitting in my living room, enjoying a cup of coffee or tea and getting to know each other just a little better. That's what I love. I love getting to hear your story. I love feeling connected by the spirit of understanding that our stories bring. Today, I'm sharing some of my story, but I hope someday soon you'll be telling me yours. Listen, I know that you're feeling overwhelmed with life and nothing is exactly how you'd like it to be. Your marriage is not what you hoped for. Motherhood is harder than you imagined and you've lost yourself somewhere in the mix of responsibilities. Well, if you're ready to bring some more peace and joy into your life, reconnect with God who made you and start living a life you love, then grab your cup of coffee or tea and let's dive into today's show. Well, welcome to another episode of the Business of Inner Peace. I'm really honored to have my sweet friend Renee here today. We're going to have an intimate conversation about grief and um, share a little bit of her story with you. And we're just going to see where God wants to take it. But we're hoping that this conversation really blesses some lives today. So welcome, Renee. Thank you, Erin. It's so wonderful to be here with you. And I think uh, this is such an important, important conversation that I'm so honored you you invited me on so we could have it. Yeah, it has been. Um, I actually met you after your son had already passed, but it has been a joy to watch your journey online to just see how things unfold. And I've been so touched by your vulnerability. So I want to say thank you because you've been so, so brave. Thank you. It's, um, it's a journey. That's for sure. I, you know, there's not been anything in my life that has brought me to my knees as much as, as much as losing my son and the, you know, process of allowing my life to completely shatter because there was, there was really no fixing that. Yeah. And then the bit by bit, breath by breath, moment by moment, prayer by prayer, you know, putting my life back together. It's, it's been an incredible, incredible walk. And I have felt, you know, the guidance from very early on. I I mean, I did cocoon very deeply for the first several months, uh, but then I, you know, I was really 
receiving the guidance of sharing some of the more vulnerable aspects of of this grief journey because I feel like that's part of the challenge that we have in modern Western society is that we we don't really do grief. Like yeah. like it's you know, everybody's living the highlight reel and um grief has gone from something in traditional indigenous cultures that is communally held, particularly something as severe and extreme and traumatizing as the loss of a child. We've gone from that where where grief was really held and witnessed and supported and loved and honored and you know the person was was really held through that journey whether you know whether they were in the deepest deepest darkest of it for weeks months or even years and in this culture it's a medicate it away numb it away drug it away um you know whatever your addiction of choice is you know or or just overly busy yourself and try and sweep it under the rug and move on and sadly when we do that i think that leads to you know, so much longer term suffering than is necessary and a disconnection from, you know, who we really are as humans and a community. So, yeah. Wow. That is really powerful. Actually, I've never thought about that perspective, but you're right. Even just reading through the Bible and all of those texts, I mean, they talk so much about like the protocol for grief, like there was literally like a way that everyone was required to address and things that they were required to do. And I had never thought about it from the standpoint of what a gift that is to the person that's um, grieving. Yep. That is really, wow. It's, it's, you know, when there's, when there's a container around you of, of loving witness, of loving support, um, the grief doesn't get stuck and metastasize as you know, illness or, um, you know, sideways anger or, you know, dysfunction, addictions, whatever it is, you know, grief needs to be metabolized and digested and, and witnessed. And we, <laughs> we are epically failing at that in Western culture, epically failing. We are in the avoidance, like, you know, I mean, it just, it's sad because there is so much deep medicine and healing and really one's life. I think if we, you know, I feel like who I authentically am and my devotion to service and my devotion to God and love has so ripened mm -hmm. through this process of really giving myself full, full permission to be with grief. Yeah. And and to not isolate it and to not keep it hidden. There's yeah. there, there's a blooming and a blossoming of my deepest soul that is happening through that process and I know that it you know, I know that it is blessing others as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, for those of the people that are listening that don't know you, would you mind just taking a couple of steps backwards and talk to us about your your story of just what happened, how you got here? Yeah. Well, gosh, <laughs> it's <so laughs> complex. There's there's a pretty big theme in my life of of um, 
of deep grief and loss and, you know, and then healing and repairing from that. And, you know, my orientation has always been from the time I was really young to, you know, when I'm brought on my knees, it's, it's, I lean into God, I lean into love and service and, and how that can ripen and repair my life. So my walk with Bodhi, so I raised my son Bodhi. I have I have three amazing children. Kiana's full-grown adult. Bodhi actually would be 22 in March, uh, but he passed away four months before his 19th birthday. And he died in the, you know, madness and intensity and chaos and craziness that we all were living through in 2020. So Bodhi died on November 10th, 2020, and um, he had always been a force. He had been a wild child. Um, I often say (laughs) that I felt like my whole 18 years with him was like a full-time job, keeping him here on planet and keeping him safe because he was just, he was just one of those wild, untamable spirits. And, And I love that about him. I honor that about him. And, you know, he didn't really have those like self-preservation mechanisms <laughs> that yeah. a lot of people have. Um, he just wasn't afraid of things. He really tested boundaries and pushed edges and really, you know, lived pretty all out, balls to the wall kind of lifestyle. And, and you know, and he also grew up without um, a solid and present relationship with his father. So he, I raised him primarily on on my own. His his dad was more involved for one year of his life when he had gotten sober. But sadly, his his father's had a lifetime of severe addiction challenges, and um, and so I I raised Bodhi mostly as a single mom. And I think one that is extremely hard, particularly for boys. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm a bad even though I've done, you know, I've done the single mom thing a lot of my years and now more than ever, I'm such a proponent of children need both a loving mother and a loving father. And in, you know, in every possible circumstance, perhaps maybe minus, you know, abuse or addictions or things that, you know, where clearly it's not best for the family to be, be together. But, you know, aside from that, like I, I really believe especially in the way society is these days, like a strong family can help, you know, protect children from a lot of the problems of modern life. And so Bodhi didn't have that. And, um, you know, I think that was a part of his, his kind of broken heart, a lot of his, his life. He also had been telling me since he was pretty young, um, he would just occasionally say things like, oh, I'm not going to live to be an adult mama, or I'm not going to ever have kids, mom. I'm not going to grow up to be an adult. And, you know, I, in my already kind of heightened state of protecting him and oh my God, he's such a force. (laughs) I just, I would just shut him down and I would, you know, don't say that. Like, what are you saying? And you know, if I could go back, I wish I would have been a little bit more curious about that. Like, what did his soul know or what, you know, what was he speaking to? But yeah, anyways, you know, he, he had, 
you know, a lot of challenges in his teen years. He had a severe brain injury at 15 that I think even though we were able to recover him a good, you know, maybe 70, 80%, um, he never felt quite the same in his own brain and in his own being. And I think that was a real struggle for him. Yeah. And he started to lean more and more into alcohol to kind of self-medicate and self-soothe um, as well as as well as pot and kind of wrestled, you know, with that, um, you know, he would have good periods of time. And then when things were really stressful, it would it would really flare up again. And so in 2020, the alcohol went really, you know, kind of off the charts and his extended friend group um, had eight deaths in 2020 and 2021. Bodhi was the fifth. Wow. Oh yeah. My goodness. Yeah. I think one of the kind of un, well, I, you know, there's, you know, 2020, 2021, I believe that the brunt of the, of how crazy everything was like the, the kids really got the worst of it. They got the worst of it. Yeah. So rates were up like crazy addiction rates, alcohol rates, overdose rates, all that was up so high. And Bodhi had been doing, you know, pretty well that summer. And then he had a friend die by suicide and we kind of entered a, about a three month slope that was, you know, the hardest, one of the hardest that his, his initial brain injury. And then that period in 2020 were the two hardest periods of my life as a mom, as a human, um, just all of it, you know, yeah. it, it was a very, very painful period of time. And I felt very helpless <laughs> to be able to help my son. Yeah. I had a series of events, event after event after event. And I, you know, I, I knew he wasn't doing well, but we were, there was just like no getting him help. Um, and he actually presented the last three days. He, he kind of was living off and on with me. He'd lived with me solidly up until 18. And then his last about eight months, he was in and out of being home and then being with his girlfriend and, you know, other different things. And his last couple of months, he was at home with me. And, um, you know, I really felt like we were losing him, but I had, there was just no resources available, even practitioners that had worked with him prior, you know, in Oregon, we were a, um, one of the most severest lockdown states there was, and yeah. nobody seen patients unless you were considered, you know, first responders or whatever. I mean, it was, it was just a very difficult time to get any kind of support for him. There was no AA meetings going on. There was, everybody was so in the craziness of that year. Um, but I felt really alone. I felt really alone and, and uncertain how to help my boy. And he had a really heartbreaking breakup one month before he passed. And I think that was a huge part of kind of the continued spiral down, um, you know, a breakup with the the love of his life who'd been with for two and a half years. And his last three days, he was presenting like he had a mild flu. And um, I'm an herbalist. I'm, you know, a health coach. I, I do all this stuff, right? My yeah. kids are at home. Of course, we go to the emergency room when needed. They All my kids have seen naturopathic doctors and that kind of thing. But, you know, I don't necessarily go to the doctor for 
everything or minor things. And so I was doing what I usually do, which is herbal tea and chicken soup and, you know, massaging his back and giving him hot baths. And he was, you know, up and about and he was still, you know, no way did I think he was near death. Um, And on the, it was, you know, like the third full day of that, he laid down to take a nap in the afternoon and he did not get up. So he actually died in his sleep with his brother and I in the other room, trying to be quiet to let him sleep because he wasn't feeling well. And, um, you know, that that day will always be the mo- most traumatic day of my life. Um, never have I screamed like that. Never have I felt such, you know, heart shattering, heart wrenching pain um, as when I found him. And. You know, there was a lot of grace in it as well. I'm so grateful to God for the grace that was was in that. Um, I do believe fully that his timing of death was between him and God. That morning, I had been in fervent prayer out on my front porch at sunrise, just begging God to help me with him and to take care of him. And he needed a father more than anything. And please help him. And, you know... To have him go in that way that was so gentle, um, he looked so peaceful. He he literally lay down on his belly like he always would when he would sleep. He fell asleep and he didn't wake up. And, you know, you got to go. <laughs> I've always thought that, you know, that's the most beautiful way to go with loved ones in the house. I mean, I wish I would have been right there with him for that moment. Um, But there was so much grace in it. And there was so much grace in the aftermath of it. So much incredible community support. Uh, It was, I knew he hadn't suicided. I think some, you know, some people in the community worried that that was maybe what had happened because Everybody knew that he'd had this hard breakup, that a friend had committed suicide just a couple months prior. Everybody knew he was really struggling. But I just knew in my heart that that wasn't what had happened. We'd had a beautiful interaction that morning and the night before. He had plans the next day with one of his best friends for his birthday. <laughs> like, you know, it just, I knew that. But it still took us four months to get the toxicology report back. Hmm. And wow. Bodhi had not been a pill popper. He had not been a hard drug user. Like we were very, we had very open conversations about these things. And um, I felt probably like 90% certain that he hadn't taken anything. But I also was like, okay, don't be naive, Renee. Like he just has literally been living through hell for three months. It's easier for kids to get pills than it is for them to get <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah. a, good meal, a good meal. I mean, it literally the drug epidemic in this country and the capacity for kids to get drugs off of Snapchat and whatever. Like I just, you know, I couldn't rule it out until the toxicology report came back. Unfortunately, the toxicology report did come back with nothing. Like he, there was no pills. He didn't take anything. Um, it was the, you know, the final, so with the initial autopsy, we did have the information of uh, his, he had a hemorrhagic, 
his his pancreas had hemorrhaged. Hmm. Well, so acute pancreatitis. So we knew that that was like potentially a you know a partial cause. Um, they also diagnosed him as fatty liver disease from the autopsy, mm-hmm. which I had not been able to get him any kind of you know good medical care since he was about 16 was the last time I was able to like drag him into a naturopath and he wouldn't do any of the things. He wouldn't change the diet. He wouldn't take the nutrition and the supplements and, you know, so, you know, we just didn't know. I mean, I had been, I had been feeling all year that his health was really suffering. Like he, you know, and I was, I was really heavily blaming it on the alcohol, which, which they, you know, the medical examiner did say was, you know, a secondary cause. So his final death, cause of death was pancreatitis, which I didn't really know much about. You know, I didn't know that it presents like the flu. Yeah. So, you know, that was you know, relieving that he hadn't taken any pills, relieving that it wasn't suicide. And, you know, it's been a very, very painful walk. I have been sober from alcohol for 30 years. I had, you know, God come, you know, I had the, on my 20th birthday, the morning after my 20th birthday, when I had drank myself into, you know, an absolute depressive you know, wanting to die state, I had the vision that there was two paths for me in my life. And one was getting sober from alcohol and the other was dead in the gutter in a year. So I've been sober from alcohol for 30 years and to have my, you know, have my son wrestle with that so hard and then ultimately die from definitely complications of severe alcohol has been one of the more you know, heart-wrenching and painful pieces of of this journey that I couldn't save him from that, that I couldn't, you know, equip him to make better choices or to, you know, and that's, and that's been really hard. That's been, you know, that's been one of the things that I've had to just give over to God because the, the guilt and the, oh my God, I should have been able to do better literally would kill me if I let it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there is as a, as a mother, as a parent, there is always feelings of rethinking and what could I have done differently? And, oh my God, could I have saved him? And, you know, the feelings of guilt or, you know, all the different, like, like, I think that's very normal, no matter what the circumstance of death. I mean, I've talked with moms who even lost kids to car accidents and their minds even go because it is our it is our job it is our duty it is our commitment and the way that we show our love is to you know protect our children and hopefully walk them into adulthood successfully yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely you know such a deep feeling of having to grapple with feelings of the failure and feelings of guilt and feelings of oh my god like how how could this have happened and you know, part of the journey for me in the last little over three years, almost three and a half years has been radical self-forgiveness and radical trust in God's will. Yeah. And in Bodhi's sovereignty 
that he, you know, was a sovereign soul on his path. And, you know, no matter how much I loved him, no matter how much I tried to save him, no matter how much I tried to show up to the best of my ability as a mother, his walk was his walk. And it was between him and God ultimately as to, you know, his time. So that, you know, that continues to bring comfort. Um, On like day three or four, I put together a Spotify playlist of all my faith music songs and all, you know, all these different songs that could kind of comfort me in that, you know, first few months of the grief journey and that acute shock phase. And I would just listen to it over and over and over and over again. And I forget who the artist is, but it's the Thy Will Be Done song. <laughs> I was like, that was like my continual prayer of like, I have to surrender to this or I will not be here. Yeah. You know, and my, you know, my desire to be here because I have two other beloved children that I would never want to not be here for. Yeah. Between that and grace and God and, community and prayer and ritual and ceremony and support and um you know and 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 an incredible you know will to live and not only survive but to learn how to thrive again has been what you know what has really brought me here <laughs> yeah yeah you thank you first of all for sharing that with us and uh man my mama heart is just with you I, I think every mom, right? It's like that. Uh, it's your worst nightmare. It's the thing that we all uh, yeah. dread. And um, that was my first thought when you were talking about just getting yourself through was like, yeah, you've got to because you, especially your son is uh, yeah. pretty young. And, you know, um, that just seems like the most trying thing as a mama is trying to walk your path and take care of yourself, but also make sure that your kid is okay. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and Caillou, so Bodhi's younger brother, was Bodhi was such a central figure in his life. Like, mm. you know, I mean, Caillou has an incredible relationship with his sister as well, but he was only three when she moved away at 18 to New York City to for her modeling career. So, so Bodhi was this, you know, prominent massive figure and joy. I mean, they were inseparable playmates for years and years. You know, I mean, once Bodhi started hitting like 15, 16, 17, it shifted, obviously. But Bodhi, uh, Caillou had just turned, he turned um, nine, six days before Bodhi passed. Mm -hmm. So kind of, you know, what he has navigated through with that loss, you know, he, he really instantly turned into an only child. Um, and you know, again, we were all navigating the craziness of 2020 on top of all of it. And it was, it was such, and I know, you know, I know there's been so much loss in 2020 and 21 and, and it's, it's part of what has really propelled me into this work of sacred grief, because I feel like, collectively there is so much unprocessed grief and there is so much trauma we're living in kind of a perpetual trauma field which you know has thankfully (laughs) 
you know, we, we've gotten some past through you know, some of the real intense acute kind of trauma state we were all in in 2021. But there's lingering effects of all of that. You know, there's lingering higher rates of alcoholism and addiction. And a lot of the children, you know, missed out on very important de- developmental years and the social needs and all of that, right? And to have had such heightened kind of anxiety. And so, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was so compounded for, for Caillou and I and, and Kiana and the family. And, um, but it, you know, bless him. I mean, Caillou is just such a bright light and such a, a force of love and comfort for me and for, you know, for so many in, in, in my family and, and he's funny. And, you know, one of the things that we used to do because the first, you know, I look back at the first nine months and I think half of it, I don't even really remember. You're so in shock. And there's literally just like, it's like every breath is willing yourself to keep surviving because the pain is, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of pain and loss in my life, a lot, a lot. And there is just nothing that has compared to, to the pain of the death of, of one of your children. And Bodhi and I were so close, like so close, you know, and it's, it's, there's so many secondary losses that we don't even, you know, talk about very much, but just all of the different ways in which our life just overnight was so shattered and so different and so, um, yeah, so painful, you know, um, but Caillou would, his little, his little trick to get his mommy to smile and laugh um, in those early months, we had, we, me and all my kids love animals. We we have this big vision. Bodhi and I had always talked about doing a rescue ranch together. Now it has morphed into doing a, a rescue ranch and a retreat center for grieving families in honor of, of Bodhi. Um, but, you know, Caillou has an equal amount of love for animals as does Kiana. And I had you know, my, my fur babies at that time. And we, Bodhi and I had been breeding Bengal Manx cats. And so, you know, depending on which litter we had, and, you know, we, at, at different points during that first, you know, six months, I, you know, had dozens of cats, right? And, <laughs> and literally I would lay in bed, I would put my, my faith music playlist on, I would just put it on repeat for hours and hours and hours and hours. And Caillou was fortunate enough to be in this little pod of uh, a group of us had a little Waldorf kind of homeschool thing going on just up the road from my house with just like five of us families so that Caillou is still having some semblance of a life as a child. Um, And I would lay there with all my animals, my big 130 pound lap dog who would put his you know, head on my heart and just sit there with me for hours and hours and hours. And Caillou would come and he'd bring the computer and he'd climb in bed with me and he would put on funny animal videos <laughs> because he knew that he could get me to smile and laugh. And, and that was a, you know, that was a place that we could connect and, and, you know, be together in that grief process, but lighten it a bit. So I don't know. I mean, those first few months, we probably watched hours and hours a day and funny animal videos and we just be snuggled in the bed with all the animals and cuddling up. And, you know, it was, you know, one of the harder, one of the hard things we've been moving through is, 
you know, Bodhi died in his sleep. And so Caillou as a young child, part of his trauma has been, oh, like people die in their sleep, like somebody mm -hmm. I die in their sleep. So we've had to work through, you know, a lot of anxiety around sleep, a lot of anxiety that something would happen to mom in my sleep or something would happen to him. And, you know, there's, it's like, gosh, when you're, you know, when you're in this journey, there's so many pieces that nobody, I was not, I was so not prepared. I mean, I don't know if you can really ever. Yeah. I don't think you can be prepared. <laughs> no, I don't think you can. And, and I think, you know, part of my mission is to really help our culture, like actually face death and loss and actually be present with grief and, and, you know, bring humanity's fullness back into the, you know, town square, if you'll say, if you will, you know, like, yeah, these things, there's these aspects of our humanness that have really been banished and grief is, you know, one of the, one of the biggest, especially grief of child loss, because again, just like you just said, it's every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah. Who the hell wants to think about it or talk about it or even look at it when it happens, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. A lot where grief can really fester. And, you know, my work with grieving mamas is all about helping them to have safe spaces where they can be heard and seen and held and witnessed in their grief because sadly, that's, that's really missing. Yeah. Really missing. Well, and I think just as, um, you know, I said that comment, like you can't be prepared. I realize that part of our contribution is having the conversation because it might be a spot for someone's to click in their brain. Like, ah, I remember, you know, this person talking about it and then they know that they're there are resources and there are places to go. But I am really curious because I've known a few people that have lost children. Um, their, their reaction and obviously the way their life looks like moving forward is very, very different. I've, I've seen people where it seems to just completely shut down living for them. And um, it always it makes my heart sad that that is the case. And then I've seen the complete opposite where I've seen someone just living so vibrantly um, despite it. But what I haven't seen is what you are choosing to do. And I really just would love for you to kind of talk about like what got you here where you're wanting to kind of create this safe place um, and all of it, obviously, it, I know that it's part of your experience, but just not many people do what you're doing. And so I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. Because I, I do feel like that's also, you know, part of my mission is to model a different way. Yeah. Right? Like show that a different way is possible. We don't have to, you know, stay completely comatose and suffering and stuck in, in the grief. Now, my experience with it is the grief is part of the natural human response to the loss of something we love. And so we, to be with grief and meet it and tend to it and give it a voice and a space in our life, that 
first of all, is like the number one thing. And so what I did in my in my life, so I took that whole first year of Bodhi passing and I said, well, first of all, I, I just thought there was no way that I... I mean, I don't, I don't know how people go back to work after something like that. Right. Like I, you know, I knew that if I didn't tend to this grief, that it would destroy me. And I also knew with my addiction and alcoholism background, that if I turned towards anything outside of myself and God and my practices and, um, you know, my own capacity to, to live through this, I knew that that would also take me out. You know, I have way too much of a background of addictions to, you know, even go the pharmaceutical route or anything, right? So my first year, there was a very conscious choice of I'm going to do this sober. I'm going to meet it. And I'm going to carve out as much as I can in my life, the time, the space, and the capacity to be with it, which in that, what that looked like for me was in 2021, I took out PPP loans and EIDL loans. Thank God there was all that COVID relief stuff, right? Like, because I'm an entrepreneur, I had been right in the middle of leading a group of women through my revolutionary radiance work. We were in a one-year program. Five months in is when Bodhi passed. Um you know, all of my private coaching, everything, I had to stop everything. There was no way that I could have held anybody outside of myself, my son, Caillou, Kiana from a distance, you know, it was just no way. So I, you know, willingly made the choice to go into debt to actually give myself that full year of being with my process. And that looked like tons of support from family and friends. I mean, we had meal train, I think that last the first six weeks, I had different friends that came and stayed with me for different periods of time. I had, you know, my core family members came out the first couple weeks. Um, and then it just really looked like the deepest, <laughs> the deepest personal mindset work and, and, self-care and tending to myself that I've ever done in my life. And I think, you know, that, that is what's essential. It's essential that we, you know, and, and the embodiment part of it, which kind of didn't, you know, really come online. I mean, the first maybe nine months, I would say, I feel like it was more like I was the mush in a cocoon. <laughs> like I was the, you know, most days I barely left my bed. Um, and then, you know, it's like I slowly, like I felt like my soul started being able to inhabit my life and inhabit my body more and more as I went through that portal that is deep grief. Um, and so that looked like, you know, meditation, prayer, um, faith music and uplifting music and calming music all day, every day, all day long. That looked like lots and lots of time with friends and family and community, um, which was, I was very fortunate in that my community didn't have that kind of hyper reaction to the COVID stuff where they didn't want to be, you know, within mm -hmm. six like my, my community didn't do that, right? We, we all continued to gather and be together and especially in that crisis. Um, and so 
you know, then the, then the, you know, more of the physicality started coming back in with slowly bringing back in some of the practices of, of, of yoga and sacred dance. Um, particularly Nia is an exercise form that I just love that has this real kind of gentle self-love spiritual quality to it. Um, started, you know, just calling myself back into my body and back into really being here on the earth and being present despite the immense and overwhelming pain. And this, you know, this, the pain of grief and the pain of child losses, I've lived with chronic pain. I've, I've had chronic pain issues since um, I started going to doctors when I was 12 years old for chronic pain, fibromyalgia type chronic pain and then structural stuff with back and neck. So like body pain I had lived with for decades <laughs> and that, you know, that is hard enough in its own. Um, but you know the 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 shattered heart the broken dreams the you know i'll never see my son walk down the aisle or hold a baby or you know though that kind of pain is unlike anything you could ever prepare for but we have to be willing to be with it right if we if we choose the the path of numbing it and now that's not to say like i'm a big believer in there's this process called pendulation, which is kind of a term in trauma work and grief work where, you know, we go deep into the grief and we meet it and we're present with it. And then we give ourselves a break, right? Like it's not about being so consumed by it 24 seven that we're just blowing out our nervous system and re-traumatizing ourselves over and over again. You got to kind of do that. You know, it's almost like a dance, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember ringing in New Year's Eve of 2021, <laughs> by myself, because my youngest was with his dad for three days, ringing in New Year's of 2021 by myself in that state of, you know, and I binge watched Virgin River, the first season of Virgin River for like five, you know, four days straight, you know, like that, like the, like I still allowed myself those kind of like, let me just tune out from my own pain for a little bit, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's really a conscious choice. And I think collectively we can help bring awareness around this, you know, because again, we have to kind of rewrite everything that we've been taught, right? I mean, we've grown up in a culture where most people are taught to let their babies cry it out, don't co-sleep, don't, don't um, nurse on demand. There's, there's a lot of like early pre-verbal imprints for most modern people that, Grief is to be done alone, put on the happy face. No one wants to be around you if you're sad. Um, you know, there's there's just all this conditioning very early on, whereas indigenous cultures, you know, babies coastly, babies nurse on demand, they're hardly ever left, you know, alone or off the mother's body or another caretaker's body. There's kind of this gradual entry into that sense of separation from the mother. And yeah. Here in the in the West, with our birthing practices, with our child rearing practices, early on, it is very much embedded into the psyche that we aren't tended to if we're crying, mm. right? See that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. What's coming to my mind is that uh, I'm such a believer in relationship, and I I deep in my soul, I know that God created us for relationship. Like if we weren't created for a relationship, 
we wouldn't even be here because it would have just it would have just been adam (laughs) like there would have never been any more humanity but we were created for a relationship and yet we live in a society that in so many ways tells you independence you you must be independent like you you know and it's it's like all these very little ways where it's just undertones but you're touching on a big part of it and I can acknowledge that piece for me in motherhood because I I was a little bit different than the the society norm or than my family norm. Yeah. Um, I I had children at home, yeah. you know, not in a hospital. And my last one, I just I wanted to just let her nurse as long as she wanted to nurse, and I let her decide when it was over. And it was so funny. Actually, COVID is what decided it was over because my husband really felt uncomfortable and wanted us to <laughs> separate when I got COVID. So I was like, "Oh, it's over." But she almost made it to four years old, and um, it and that came from me studying ind- indigenous cultures and wanting to know what they did. And there's so much value in just in like many layers of our life and going back to that, like we're so out of touch and I think technology and all of that stuff adds to it where we are kind of forced to live more of this independent, I'm okay life. Um, And it really, it actually got me a a question popped in my head around it for you because I think one of the things we're sort of like taught around grief is sometimes we can just say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and make it more painful for the person that's grieving um and I think there's a little bit of truth to that as I've been grieving not the not a death, but just uh, difficult relationships and painful marriage stuff. There have been people that said things to me that were, it, it was more painful. And so I, that's kind of on my heart is, you know, do you think that's true? Is it a falsity? Is there something we should say or shouldn't say? Yeah. Well, I, you know, this is a really, I think this is a really important piece and I love that you're asking the question because you know, I mean, you can, you can go, you know, you can go on YouTube and be like, what to say to, you know, a, a bereaved mother or someone with loss or what, you know, the 10 things not to say. And, and I think I'm grateful that there's attention being brought to it. And I think the main thing that I would love for people to know, myself included, like, I wish I would have known this five years ago. It took my own loss and my own journey with this deep grief to to really experience this aspect. So the number one thing that you can do to support somebody that is in deep grief is not what you say. It's actually about just showing up and being in loving, unconditional, not giving advice, not, you know, not being critical. It's it's a pure presence of I'm here to support I love you, I see you, and I'm here with you, even in this pain. Because when we can come from that place, from heart space, you know, God-sourced kind of relationship and being with another, it's not, you know, again, it's not so much the exact words to say or not say, because even those things, like, 
Like I've read a lot of those and I'm like, well, actually when someone has said that to me, that was fine. And when someone said that, that wasn't fine. It's so unique for every single person. Every human being going through the grief journey is going to have their own triggers, their own things that would set them off or not set them off or what would comfort them or what wouldn't. And the concern that I have is if we get too, you know, too nitpicky on, oh my God, what do I say? I need to know the exact right thing to say. First of all, it takes away any authenticity, right? And spontaneity in the moment. And it's just going to perpetuate the problem that we already have in our culture, which is people are already in massive avoidance with grief. Yeah. There already is this orientation in our culture of just to, you know, not show up when someone's in deep grief because we already have so much fear around saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, or I don't know, I just don't know how to show up for them. So it's easier to just not show up at all. So I think if we put the focus on, listen, like, just just shut your mouth, just like be an ear, be, be, be at arms and a, and a loving, you know, hug to someone, let them cry in your lap, do their dishes, clean their house, just be there with them. Because again, it's back to that, like this imprint that we have of the isolation, independence, lone wolf kind of thing, where, you know, what we see in our culture and modern day cultures is most people go into isolation when they're in deep grief, because they actually perhaps have never really been held through such a dark night, right? So, yeah. but if we can actually start to flip that script and have people that just show up in love and support and honoring, and we're not there to fix it, you can't fix it. There is nothing someone could say that would bring back Bodhi for me. Sure. Right? You can't fix it. You can't advise it away. You can't distract it away. Here's another one thing, one, one other thing. So, you know, so, so meeting someone in heart space, loving presence as support. That's the number one thing. Just be there for them. And, and not just in the first few weeks, but months and even years later, right? Like be there for them for the long term as just a loving support. For somebody to actually have that experience of, oh, like I can actually be in my deep grief and be witnessed and be held and supported. And then what that does when, 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 when grief is actually held, seen and supported, it can do its natural thing and it can move through as energy and as emotion and as, right, instead of getting stuck in the body as dis-ease or illness or getting stuck in the body and then coming out sideways as anger or explosive things, right? So so that's the number one thing is meet, you know, best way to support someone in grief is to just be there out of love and support. Doesn't matter. Shut your mouth, put your ears on, <laughs> you know? I mean, to me, it's, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry you're in this pain. I am here with you. I'm here with you. And then, then another piece of that um, is, oh, what was that thought? I wanted to make sure and share that one. Uh, and I'll come back if it if it's mentioned. Okay. Well, I I'm like while we're letting your brain bring it back to us, yes. um, I have noticed that people don't do well with a general idea. Um, I'm a flight attendant. 
you know, and there are some things that if we tell people a general idea, they just won't do it. But if I tell them very specific actions, they will. And I think this is true of all humanity in all situations. So I want to try this out because I think people need like, here's a concrete, like, here's what you could do. So if I came to you and just said, Renee, I love you. My goal is to be here for you. I'm coming to your house every Tuesday morning for an hour and you don't have to talk to me. I'm going to clean or do whatever needs to get done. And if you don't want me there, you can tell me anytime and I won't be angry or pass judgment. I just want to be there for you. Does that feel like... Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Because okay. yeah. I have heard what I hear most people do is say, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, let me know. Right. And a grieving person, particularly in the first few months, they have no idea what they need. They have but no it's also, idea. you're putting the responsibility on them yeah. to figure it out. And I feel like that's really difficult. Yeah. You yeah, it's come it's, up with the idea yourself. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, you're so right on there. You're so right on with all of that. It's 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 really, you know, taking that initiative. So so again back to indigenous cultures when you know when someone would would lose a loved one, that person would be tended to nonstop. Sometimes for the first year, their food would be made, their, you know, they would be massaged and and sat with and things brought to them. And it was an ongoing thing that they, you know, they didn't, they were tended to. It's, 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 a, it's attending to grief and it's attending to the griever, but that person didn't have to initiate it. That person didn't have to like, think about, you know, what they want. And so a lot of this comes down to the core. So like in early acute grief, a lot of it comes down to the core community that really knows that family taking that initiative, making a meal train, writing out what their dietary restrictions are, sending it to all the people in the community, maybe taking the initiative to, to you know, make a list of, okay, who can come over when to just sit with the griever, to clean the house, to be with the child, who can, right? There's, there's, it's that core circle of community that really, I think, um, can do the best to support in the, in the early days. Um, because, you know, and I was, I was so blessed to have that. I was so blessed to have the dearest friends and family come to me in that way and just take charge. And I just got to weep in my bed. Yeah. You know, it, it was, it was such a blessing. And sadly, well, a lot of people don't have that. Okay. So the other piece that I want to say, here's the other thing that I think is really a misunderstanding in our culture. So a lot of people think, okay, when I see the person, don't mention the loss and don't mention the name of the child or whoever passed. But this is particularly the situation in with with parenthood. Because so so people don't want to mention the name because they think that, you know, the person is going to lose it or oh my god, I'm going to totally trigger them or remind them of what they just lost. Let me promise you any grieving parent has not forgotten their, their child, has not forgotten what has happened. And actually, the opposite is true. It is way more painful if it's not mentioned at all. It's weird. It's like, okay, this person just expects me to act like nothing's happened or, you know, like, like mention 
the child, like it, it, even if it's a year later or whatever, and you're you know having tea, like it, it to me, it brings me so much fulfillment. It might come with tears most of the time, but it it there's a sense of my relationship and and who I was as a mother to my son Bodhi gets to carry on through my conversations about him, through my memories that I get to share about him. It means the world to me when someone comes up and tells me some beautiful story of a memory that they have of of themselves with my son. Like mm-hmm. that lights me up so deeply, right? So it's it's actually the opposite of what most people do. Most people think, oh, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't mention his name. I should just act like nothing's happened because I'm totally scared of that. That could just, she might start crying in the grocery store, you know? Yeah. My encouragement to people and obviously, you know, maybe there are the times where that, you know, you know, I don't, you know, it, it's, it's so, it's so important to know that a grieving parent wants to be able to talk about their child that they've lost six months out, five years out, 10 years out. I hope I am telling Bodhi's story for the rest of my life. You know, like that's yeah. one of the ways that I get to carry out his his legacy his mission his you know gift in this lifetime and that i you know i can honor this period of time i had you know between the pregnancy and his time with me i had bodhi as the core you know core 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 i had him 100 percent of the time my other two spent time with their dads you know it was a different different situation yeah so I get to honor that 20-year period of my life by these beautiful memories and sharing the stories. So don't be afraid to ask, you know, about the child or, you know, oh, I'd love to, you know, hear a beautiful memory that you have, you know, you know, or show me some pictures of your child or, right? Because that yeah. actually, it, it's deeply touching and healing for a parent to be able to continue to talk about their child. I love that. Well, our time is just about up. And so before we go, I'd really love for you to just tell people, you know, like in a snippet, what's the work that you're doing with grieving parents right now, and then how they connect with you. Great. Wonderful. Well, so all last year, I was kind of like, am I bringing out revolutionary radiance back out? Or am I going into sacred grief work? And I think ultimately, I'll do both. But right now, um, as of the last, you know, few months, I've really like, claimed and said, yes, okay, God, this is this is what I'm being led into. So I've created a body of work called sacred grief alchemy. So the website is sacredgriefalchemy.com. So you can find me there. I have a YouTube channel that I'm just launching this week. So you'll be able to find that there as well. The channel is actually live. There's just not videos on it yet. Um, but, and then I'm also on socials under Renee Jeffers and also Sacred Grief Alchemy. And I'm doing a lot of sharing uh, both on um, Instagram, my Facebook, and then my plan with the YouTube channel and podcast is to really like bring this conversation of sacred grief work front and center and do, you know, awesome interviews and conversations just like this one. Um, (laughs) And to really, I'm, I'm offering both private coaching work. I call myself a grief guide. So not a therapist. Um, I, it's more about walking alongside and my, my deepest heart 
desire and prayer is to really be able to help particularly grieving moms that have lost a child. So in March, I'm starting two circles for eight-week online programs that will be the Sacred Grief Alchemy work, um, where we're going to be you know, having the space, the sacred container for women to share what their journey has been and to speak about their children and share pictures and learn practices and different things, do rituals together, just different ways that have been a huge part of my healing journey and my ability to, you know, really move from barely surviving the first year to bit by bit, breath by breath, day by day, beginning to thrive and thrive and thrive and 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 rebloom a life that, you know, is is in honor and celebration of Bodhi and um, you know, a a, a mission of of gratitude to God for how beautiful this world still is, even with grief, even with loss. So that's that's where they can find me, sacredgriefalchemy.com. And I'm really just so honored and excited and grateful to have had this conversation with you. I love that. I'll be sure that all of that is in the show notes so everyone can find you. And I just feel like the most appropriate way to end today, would you just share one of your happy Bodhi memories with us so we can honor his life and just be thankful that uh, truly he is the the precipice for beautiful conversation that we're having. Oh, I love that. Thank you, honey. I'm like, oh, which one? There's so many. (laughs) So, I mean, my favorite, favorite, favorite of him, he was such a love bear. Like he loved with such a depth. There was not a conversation ever, I don't think, that ended without him giving me the biggest bear hugs and saying, I love you, mama. I love you, mama. I mean, he would tell me that dozens and dozens of times a day, even in his teens, you know? So out of all the all the amazing memories, just how much of a force for love um, he was in my life and in many others. That makes my mom heart happy because I have it. I have teenagers that don't always like to hug, so I'm like, "Good job, Bodie. I'm glad you hugged your mama." Yeah, yeah, uh, there was. There's never been a doubt in my mind that we had just the deepest, most most beautiful love, and for that, I will be eternally grateful. Yeah, you're such a blessed mom. Beautiful, beautiful kiddos. Thank Thank you from the bottom of my heart for just showing up and being vulnerable and being willing to lead all of us in a way that I believe is better and it honors the human, the human soul. So God bless you. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're feeling blessed by the content here, the number one way you can show me is by leaving me a written review of the show. I'd be forever grateful knowing that you're out there listening helps me know that I'm truly living out God's purpose in my life. The other thing you can do is take a screenshot of this episode, share it with a friend, or better yet, tag me on your Instagram stories. Remember, you are seen, known, and loved. May God richly bless you today. All my love, Erin Jean.